and welcome to another edition of the Being You podcast. This is James Short and welcome, welcome, welcome. Once again, we had honor and privilege to have this amazing guest with us today. Oh, this is going to be insightful, impactful, and very, very interesting. Oh, so who do we have? Rupert Evel. Oh, drum roll, please. He's the founder of Ethics Insight. He has 20 years of experience managing investigations, risk assessments, crisis response, and ethics and compliance advisory support across more than 30 sectors in 50 countries. Oh my gosh, what a wealth of information this gentleman is. Rupert has augmented his professional experience with further studies in behavioral analysis and investigative interviewing. He's a certified fraud examiner and counterintelligence threat analyst. Wow, that's a mouthful, but uh, very insightful because I'm really interested to understand the psychology around this. Uh, Rupert uses his, uh, this training and frontline experience, having seen what works and what doesn't, to really inform practical and effective guidance to help organizations better predict, prevent, adapt, and respond to risks so needed right now. Rupert has lived in Asia for 11 years after working across E-M-E-A for a decade. Check his website out at ethicsinsight.co. And he, today, he's want to, uh, if you want to have a chat with him, we'll send the link for a free 30 minutes uh, consult in the show notes a little later. Rupert, legend, mate. So good to have you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome, mate. Awesome. So, I mean, that was a little snapshot, but there's so much more to you of how you got to where we are here right now. Do you want to share with us a little bit about that backstory and, and how you got to, to doing what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I think the, um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to be like most people. I probably still don't. And so uh, I remember when I was at university, there was a lot of people who were, you know, you, you probably came across and they, were, they already knew exactly what they wanted to be. And I didn't. And uh, so I, um, when I was graduating, pretty much everyone else was going into things like, I don't know, law, banking, big corporates, management consulting. And I looked at all of that and just thought, do I have to? And then luckily I saw <laughs> um, a, a job that was um, to do with like uh, counterterrorism risk stuff. And so I, um, I just applied and that was the start. And so the, the, it was really very entry level. People assume it's, that's glamorous, but one of the best bits of advice I got when I was graduating was from the person giving that speech said, you know, essentially the word that he was said it much ni more nicely than this, but you think you're, you know, the bee's knees, but you're going to go out into the workforce and make the coffee. So be ready for that adjustment. And the, um, in the counterterrorism world, that it's the making the coffee is looking through lots of after action reports. So you're looking at a lot of horrible stuff, lots of pictures of, uh, post um, uh, counter-terrorist ops or uh, terrorist incidents, trying to work out what's going on, trend analysis. So there's lots of sort of grunt work. And, and that was good because it gave me a solid foundation in lots of countries I didn't know anything about. And so the, uh, but after a while, I realized the, um, the what really flicked my switch was what you might call the diagnostic side, the why. Uh, and so I was lucky that I had a mentor at the time that said, uh, well, you should think about investigations. And he introduced me to a whole bunch of people operating in that sort of sector. And this is like the early to mid 2000s. So the, the, there'd been a real boom uh, because of the Iraq invasion and lots of private military contractors, but that meant there were some real dirtbags out there as well. So I, you had to pick quite carefully who you wanted to work with. 
And so I started out in London in 2006 with an organization called Control Risks and um, doing investigations across EMEA. And at that time, there was huge amounts of sort of money washing into Western Europe and particularly London from the former Soviet Union, from Sub-Saharan Africa, all kinds of sort of dodgy dealings. And that's when I started to understand about this sort of nexus between business, politics, corruption, um, organized criminality and all of those things like the gangster states. And then um, that ultimately led in 2010 to me applying for a role out here in Singapore where my remit for initially at least was it's still investigations but I was meant to build up their assets their their sources their network across out Southeast Asia so building uh, people who could go and gather information for us um, people who were plugged into certain communities and we could sort of tap up for information and that was fun I mean it was that was sort of I spent I think my first year or 18 months in Singapore I actually only spent I don't know probably three four months here so the most of the time I was in places like Vietnam um, Myanmar Thailand Cambodia Laos that was where I was specializing and I, I really loved it and then um, that uh, after sort of responding to myriad crises for companies and extortions and kidnaps and all that kind of stuff and I, I started to realize two things I had a little bit of a gap in my knowledge I would often be sitting opposite people and I'm having this feeling about like I can see through you this is not authentic this is bullshit so but I didn't have the frame of reference necessary to always decipher it so that's when I went back to do further studies and actually was lucky enough to get sponsored to do some studies back in the UK by a guy who's gone on to become a friend and mentor and so I did that for three four years uh, they're a very elite team focusing particularly on deception detection and in that area so that they're human lie detectors essentially and they um so they took me under their wing for years and during that time, the work transitioned. Clients started going from, look, we've had enough of whack-a-mole of getting our pants pulled down, getting extorted, getting all these problems. How do we start to prevent them? And then that was a that was a real change because trying to think about more of the, you know, the, all of that experience to turn it on its head and work backwards and go, well, how do we stop these things from happening? And then in 2019, I started Ethics Insight because I saw a real opportunity to be a bit more creative here, but also to democratize access to this. I saw that big companies and, and big organizations like World Bank type things or governments can get this kind of support. But your average SME, and by which I mean anything right up to sort of juniors and people just listing those type of organizations, even booming startups, they don't know where to start. There's no mm -hmm. template. And what, what really brought it home for me is in the first year of my business, I, um, somebody had spent their whole time in the shadows, didn't have a Facebook account or LinkedIn profile really or anything like that. And I suddenly had to deal with marketing and I started reading and they go, well, search engine optimization, social media, uh, cold email. And I was like, this is a language I do not understand. I have not got a clue where to start. And then I was like, ah, this is what all of these other organizations are like. They do not know where to start. And so that's, that's what I'd now try and do, try and democratize the access to that advice and make it simple and actionable, making risk relevant, basically. Wow. Wow. Like you would have seen over that tenure stuff that the Mars and the Pars of the world have got no idea of. Does that, does that change your viewpoint of, the world society people because you've got that further information or 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 does it or not um i don't know because i'm only me <laughs> so the, the uh i think honestly the particularly after having kids uh, the 
uh, there's a lot of, you know, whether you're religious or not, hopefully this phrase will resonate, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, that I would go into countries and I remember taking a, um, a colleague who was pretty green, he just moved over from the UK and we were doing an investigation in Cambodia about money laundering and pretty much, it's a very dollarized economy, very corrupt, pretty much every organized criminal dirtbag is there. So we were looking into just all of this stuff and it, it overlaps with human trafficking and uh, child sex rings and all kinds of horrific stuff. And I remember just walking down one of the streets to a meeting with him and um, I, was, I realized how I knew it had become. I was just sort of walking along. I was kind of used to operating in these environments. And he just stopped. He's like, this is, look, just this. And there was kids, you know, with nothing, um, eating food on filthy sidewalks. And it's not that you don't see that, but you you sometimes have to take a step back. And the that happens more and more now, I think, as you get older, and particularly with children. And that's when the real passion came in. Because to be honest, probably in my 20s, I was doing it mainly for selfish reasons. I thought it was interesting. And then it's all about sort of going into now where I'm my mid-40s, where you're like, well, I, you don't want to be messianical or, or get ahead of your impact in the world. But if I can stop one kid from being in that situation, if I can sort of alleviate corruption, which I do believe is the root of many ills, because whether you're a terrorist, whether you're an organized criminal, whether you're a corrupt politician, you're doing it for money and power. So if we can turn off that tap somehow, and money is the easier tap to turn off because it's more tangible, um, then that's gotta be a good thing. So human rights, money laundering, uh, corruption, those type of things, the, they're not why I got into this business, but they're now, I see them, businesses and, and other organizations, not-for-profit, as a very good vehicle. If they can improve their governance and turn off that tap, then everyone else benefits. Wow. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. So I'd like to, to just to unpack a little bit of that around, um, I believe everyone has a genius or multiple genius. Sometimes people know what it is. Some people are still searching for, for that. Um, if you think about your journey and, and your adventures and, and who have you become today, what do you feel your genius is in life? It could be within business, could be within home, could be a mixture of different things. Do you feel that that's a part or one part or multiple geniuses? Is there a genius that you feel that you've, you've got? Um, I think probably the genius would be not knowing I'm not a genius. So I have a white belt mentality yes. to everything. And the, um, and I, I, I know that, my craft is never finished and it never will be. I will be learning this stuff until I shuffle off this mortal coil. And the, the, um, and it, it's that constant sort of thirst for understanding knowledge, betterment, understanding people. I get, I guess if I think about what, from what feedback of others, what's made me successful is yes, for, I do have this knack to be able to see through people and in authenticity and that's helpful, but it's more that, um, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed and I've been surrounded by a lot of people that are. So what I remember from money laundry is a good example. The first time a smart person tried to explain it to me, they're like, well, you've got placement, you've got layering, you've got integration. And in the financial system, they have the this and the that. I'm like, okay, can we, we, can we stop? And so <laughs> the, um, what happened during lockdown, which was helpful is I had my, she's now just turned 11, but she was then nine at the beginning, nine-year-old next to me as I was working at the kitchen table. And I realized that if I couldn't explain the concepts to her, then they've got no chance of being socialized throughout the business. So one, to give one example, there's this thing called facilitation payments that people talk about in corruption. And the way it's defined is um, payment to an official 
in order for them to properly discharge their duties. And I said that to her and she goes, I understand each of those words on their own. I don't understand what they mean going together. And I said, it's, it, that's the whole point. So then we, we worked out, well, the much better way of explain, explaining that is um, paying someone extra to do their job. And so the, the, when I, you think about all these things, if you can distill it into that nine-year-old, 10-year-old language, that forces you to learn. And there's a lot of studies out there, like the American Training Institute says, the best way for us to learn is to teach others. So the, what I try and do with any of my content is I try and learn it and then think, how would I teach this to a kid? And by doing that, that helps me simplify it. And I think a lot of people, particularly people with lots of training, like lawyers, they understand that code and then they just project that code out into the world and they don't realize that everyone else doesn't get it. So I think that it's yeah. it's not a genius, but it's a recognition of my own limitations that help me explain stuff to others. Love it. I love it. I love that that analogy of that yearn to learn always that white belt mentality of always there's always something else there's always something else and you know like it's a big world out there right and there's bits of multiple different areas and 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 that approach of how can i teach this how can i simplify this and 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 teach it to to a child i think that's beautiful because you see it in in hospitals right they have the 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 doctor come around and do the bedside uh debrief and sometimes they're not so much bedtime uh, bed uh, side manners because they just go blah because yeah. they're so used to that information it's like it's getting it out and i think there's a very similar if we can start to teach that through no matter what we do right it, i think it would be a, a, a completely different world what yeah. what inspires you what gets you going what 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 does it for you oh the, the um uh, the, i i think i always find it inspirational when you see um things that you don't have that you perhaps should. Like I've got one friend who has this kind of infinite capacity for caring and empathy. And um, I, I sort of I look at that. Um, so there's sometimes you look at it and the you think, wow, that's, that's special what that person's got. And then the other things that inspire you when you see someone who maybe is operating some of those same areas as you, like I know you, for example, you're into your endurance sport and we talked briefly yesterday about Dave Goggins. So, people who've got that excellence, that courage, and that kind of grit. Um, I think the, they, they, I find them very inspirational because through much of my life, that's been integral. But as a business owner, as you know, you, you get a kicking on a very regular basis. So you, you have to learn to embrace that suck. Otherwise, you're not going to survive. You have to develop that kind of grit and resilience. And that, there's this poem my dad gave me when I was 18, which is If by Rudyard Kipling. And one of the lines in it is, if, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And I think pe the people who can, you know, that, that's a, that mentality, the people who can um, achieve great things, not let it go to their head, but also deal with the disasters and just keep going. I, I have huge admiration for that. Oh, I love that. That's a great verse. That is a great verse. Um, growing up, who, who was your biggest impact and why? Definitely my dad. So the, he, um, uh, my mom told me when I was an adult and when um, we were having kids that my, my dad, we, we knew that he didn't, he grew up without a father, single parent family. His mother had like multiple partners. Some of them were, you know, difficult and abusive. And so he'd had a, a pretty rough uh, childhood. But when my mom was pregnant with me, apparently he went, he's, he said, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I've got no template. And so he went away and just read books and he decided he was going to base his, parenting on Atticus Finch, the, the lawyer in, um, in uh, 
is it to kill a mockingbird who 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 the um so he for he was a phenomenal sportsman a very good boxer um highly motivated like sort of didn't go to university but managed to edu- uh, pay his own way through law school while working and so he was a really sort of very very what well, is still a very driven person um but he never pushed any of his desires or things that he was into on us um and he he was always a man of he very chatty but when it came to the real big um conversations he had a he has an amazing clarity of thought that I just that still to this day like I remember when um when I was you know I'd, I'd met my now wife and it was going to potentially change my life upside down because I wanted to move to Japan at the time I met her I'd actually got like the dog vaccinated and I got my visa ready and I was about to leave Singapore and so I spoke to my dad I was like this is going to completely change my you know uh, my life and uh, I said how did you know you know uh that you love mum because they've been married for like 50 60 years and he said i just did and i was like well no what do you mean he goes because well, i could give you like lots of reasons why i love her like she does this she does that she's this characteristic that trait and he goes but it would actually be doing her a disservice i love her because i love her wow. and he has that, that 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 sort of way to connect and you're like okay that he's he's an amazing sort of clarity of thought beautiful beautiful straight between the eyes that one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. If you were to give your 25 year old version of you some advice, what would that be? Uh, you're a lot tougher than you know. Mm. Go, go push yourself through adversity earlier and quicker. You'll do fine. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now a father, congratulations. <clears throat> uh, share us, share us with your, with us, your, your parent journey. How has that been for you? What have you, what are some of the, big lessons that you've taken away for, for being a father? Um, well, it's been an unconventional one. So um, when I'm, um, my wife and I got together, she already had um, Ali, who I now consider my daughter, who's, who was five at the time. Um, Ali had been basically abandoned by her father um, a year or two before. And um, I realized quite quickly that it, the, uh, if a colleague put it really well, he said, uh, having a kid or, you know, taking the uh, caregiver role with the kid is like getting a face tattoo you've got to commit you know the you can't just do a little one you, you've got to commit and so the and so I realized that um whilst I wasn't going to force myself into her life I had to be constant present you can't like go half caregiver you know and so the so from the early stages that I the, the second great bit of advice I got was from this guy, Cliff Lansley. He's a mentor and a friend to me. He's the guy who sponsored my behavioral analysis studies. And he's got a wonderful relationship with his three boys. They're all grown up now. And he said, the only thing I can tell you is, it's never about you. Never. And so the, when you will find your ego and your pride and things getting triggered and you'll find yourself getting hurt and that kind of stuff, but it's never about you. It's about them. And the, um, and so that, Ali was a good template because I was dealing with somebody who already had some stuff that they would dealing with and so we had to grow and learn that role together so by the time Luke my son came along uh, and he's now four then it was uh, I'm the what was was strange but what was coming was also clearer so now with with both of them they they each teach me a lot they teach me more than I think I teach them including your ugly sides as well your triggers and um, 
you know, as a, but the point is you always have to remember at the end of the day, it's all about them. You chose to have them or be in their lives. They did not choose you. Uh, and that, that's an honor that you should treat with that level of perspective. Beautiful. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much for that sharing. It's so true on so many levels. Um, yeah, really appreciate it. I've got some uh, rapid fire questions for you. So uh, here we go. Uh, best piece of advice given to you? Uh, well, that, the one about in, uh, having kids, it never being about you, I think was a really good bit of advice. Um, uh, the other one I've already given, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, treat those two imposters just the same. I like that. Um, yeah, I think that those two would be good. And, and the other thing my dad uh, um, taught me was that hatred is a poison that you drink thinking it's going to harm the other. Ooh, wow. Some curly ones there. Well, I love them. I the love opposite them. Of, if you think about it, the opposite of, of love is not hate, it's indifference. Um, so if there's you know, people who have done you ills and everyone has them, better to move them to the indifference bucket than hatred. Hatred is just going to consume you. So true. So true. Best piece of advice you've given to someone? Uh, I think so I'm doing quite a fair bit of mentoring. And one of the things that that's teaching me is that people know what they want deep down. It's just sometimes they don't know how to get it out. And so your job is less about giving advice. It's more about shining lights down little corridors and showing potential doors and then letting them choose which one to go through. Uh, but the, it, recently there was a bit of advice I had passed on to one person, which was, a, it was a, a book and it was talking about how we have, you know, our rational head and then we have the gut instinct and we need to have that space in between to kind of moderate those two. So sometimes thinking into your chest and not just talking about your heart, but into your chest and going, well, what's the balance here between the rational and the gut mm -hmm. and just taking that and that forces you to take a pause, which I think often if we look at regretful decisions, they were because we were reactive. Beautiful, beautiful piece. I love that. I love that. Uh, best book? Uh, I think it would still have to be Birdsong. I, I read it like a very long time ago, a book by Sebastian Fawkes. It's about uh, World, World War One and the, the tunnelers that dug underneath the uh, tunnels. And I didn't realise why it resonated with me, with me so much. It was just one of the books I remember reading till three, four in the morning and went out of work the following day. And I found out, um later from my mum that my ancestors on my dad's side had been those tunnelists and so the uh the almost it, it felt like i was the, no book has felt so viscerally oh. like i was there it's almost like there's some sort of genetic coding that helped me tap into it but it was very very resonated that just given me chills chills down the back wow that's powerful that's powerful uh best movie uh last time Mohicans. it's got every bit of human emotion in it Oh yeah. Favorite food. Oh, that really depends on the time of day and my mood. But uh, <laughs> if I think back to the food, I've, I've, I like the first time I tasted it and I still like it now as it would be probably peaking duck rolls. By the Ooh, ones yum, you actually, actually made yourself. Yeah. So good. Um, best self care strategies. Again, I think this is very uh, personal and sometimes uh, different things do or don't work, but the, for, I need discipline. Uh, I need discipline to be my best self and not the, not the, the alternative. And so I think uh, get up early, um, do, journaling your meditation, language practice helps for me, exercise every single day, um, 
have something communal. It's been tough, obviously, for a lot of people with that recently. For me, it's that community has been martial arts. And then um, uh, block, particularly now, I've had to learn to physically block time in my calendar where I put down devices and people can't reach me so you can have really present time with the people you actually care about. The number of times I see people out when they're at a meal and they're just kind of glancing down at their phone. And, um, yeah, we all do it, but we, we should do less of it. Yeah, so true, so true. Um, superhero you would choose and why? Uh, it's got to be Batman because the it's it's slightly more accessible than the rest. I'm not I'm not from Krypton or wherever, but the uh, <laughs> the, the but the idea of like beating up bad guys and um, having a Batcave. I, I, I think you'd struggle to find any overgrown schoolboy that that doesn't resonate with. <laughs> Love it. And biggest regret? Um, not joining the military. I wanted to do that when I was uh, in my early twenties, and I was kind of talked out of it. But by my by my mum and I think I probably should have done it. I, I went into something sort of proximate, which I I've loved, but I think I would have enjoyed that. Yeah, nice, nice. And what's the most exciting thing you were looking forward to moving forward? Well, we're, we're moving back to the UK next year, so that will be nice. It'd be nice to be near a family. It'd be nice to have outdoor space. It would be nice for the kids to have a, a more connected relationship with nature. Um, a little bit more of the the risks that come with that, like falling out of trees and stuff. And so you know the. The important things about growing up because if i think about most of my good memories as a kid it was me and my brother um doing either fun or dumb stuff outside so, so true right so true so how can how can the audience find out about more about you and and follow that this journey that you're on well i mean i'm fairly active on linkedin i'm i'm, I'm not a fan of Facebook for sort of moral and other reasons. So the LinkedIn is the best place to, to find me. Um, you've already given the business address, but yeah, I think just uh, I, the one of the things that I suspect a lot of people say, but I actually mean it is I'm, I am happy to have a chat with people, no obligations. Like the, I'm, I'm here to be helpful. You, you're not as, I think sometimes people think on LinkedIn, you're going to try and pitch them or something. That's not the intention because people have to want to work with you in what I do because you have to trust and you have to open up and tell me things that you're worried about. So the, anyone who's interested in this, anyone who wants to get into it, whatever your, your, your interest, very happy to, to chat. Awesome. Awesome. Rupert, we could be talking about so many different things all day. I just want to say thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it guys. Go and go and check it out. It's like, Go and find him on, on LinkedIn, Rupert Evel. Like, it's just absolutely, he's a world of information, knowledge, and expertise. Mate, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for, for sharing it with us. Well, thank you so much for having uh, having me, and good luck getting your run organized. I'm looking forward to that and being supportive of that as well. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Being You podcast. Have a great day. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.